reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed, he bestowed sight. And he, said to, he, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like to children in sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. The Gospel of the Lord. Uh, Almighty Father, we ask... Um, In that reading, uh, Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me, who doesn't find me a scandal, uh, who doesn't, blessed is the one who doesn't draw near to Jesus, see who he is, and run away, but who finds ourselves drawn near to Jesus and say yes. And, and Father, there's a lot in us that uh, wants to run away when we get close to Jesus. And so we need your Holy Spirit. We need your power to fortify us, to strengthen us, to give us an ability to say yes to Jesus that is genuine and at the same time not of our, not a, that doesn't originate in us but in you. So uh, help us to listen and then incline our hearts to Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen. Please uh, sit down and uh, it would be helpful if you turn back to that long reading from
uh, Luke chapter 7. Let me, let me set it up like this. Um, there are many reasons why I find the Bible deeply compelling. Uh, here's, here's two of many. Um, one is that I find the Bible compelling because the Bible does not airbrush uh, its apparent heroes. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible is honest. It's a deeply honest book. It honestly portrays the life and the struggles of uh, the people that, ap that appear to be the main heroes of the text. And, and that's not normally the case in a lot of religious literature. A lot of religious literature wants to curate the image of uh, its of its heroes. It's called hagiography. We want to we we want to tell a story of a saint or some great religious person. We want to airbrush out all the complexity, all the questions, all the struggle. We want to front foot the strengths. We want to minimize uh, the the uh, the difficulties the person goes through. A little bit like a like the way you curate a, a social media feed. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible lets us see the texture and the struggle of, of, its, of its key uh, people. For instance, in our reading, you got John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is unambiguously a good guy. In fact, Jesus will say, you're not going to find anybody better than John. Uh, however, this reading does not airbrush John. Um, when the scene opens, John is in prison. Um, John is hearing about Jesus. And Jesus is not doing the things that John expects Jesus to be doing. And so John sends a group of his followers, this delegation to Jesus, and they say, in effect, Jesus, John expected you to do this. In fact, he told everybody you were going to do this, but you're doing that, which is challenging John's expectations. And so he's got a big, urgent question. Are you who John thought you were? That's a big question. The Bible's honest about that, about John's struggle. That's one thing I find compelling about the Bible. Here's another thing I find compelling about the Bible, and I'll bring them together in a minute. Um, the Bible does not idealize religious observance. Um, the Bible's message is not, you know, the world would just be a whole lot better if we all just did a lot more religious-y things. Uh, in fact, uh, the more you go, get into the Bible, and particularly this part of the Bible we're in, which is the Gospel of Luke, it's one of the most devastating critiques of religious observance that I'm aware of anywhere. And you can see it in the reading, because in this reading, you've got uh, the, just the most religiously observant people that you can imagine, the, the Pharisees, and they end up uh, completely missing God tragically missing God. And on the other hand, you've got uh, people like the tax collectors who are religious outsiders. And yet, in a remarkable and unexpected way, they end up knowing God with a, with a reality that completely misses the super-religiously observant. The Bible doesn't idealize religious observance. The Bible's able to cut through the veneer and and go straight for what does it mean to really know God? The question is not how religiously observant are you? The question is, do you know God or do you don't know God for real? Now, 
these two things I find compelling about the Bible. The Bible doesn't airbrush its heroes, but is able to front foot their struggles. And on the other hand, the Bible doesn't idealize religious observance, but cuts through it to ask the question, do you really know God? And what I want to show you today is how those two things come together in Jesus. How Jesus meets us in the midst of our struggle, our questions, our unmet expectations about God, and then can lead us from there to, an, to knowing God for real and not just being religiously observant. Now, if that's unclear, that's fine. Let's get into it, and I'll show you what I mean. Um, we need to uh, start with John the Baptist's, ah, what do we call it, crisis of faith? That's probably too strong. But we need to start with John's wrestle with faith. Uh, let me fill in the backstory. So John the Baptist is uh, the cousin of Jesus. Uh, John was really, really good at making people uncomfortable and angry. Uh, he was a prophet. He was a preacher. He was not part of the establishment. He lived out in the middle of nowhere, and he he was just really good at critiquing the nation and the and the establishment. So his message went something like this. He said, "Hey, everybody, lean forward." He says, "We need to talk about corruption." Says John. John uh, John says, "Hey, listen. Our nation is terribly corrupt. Our religious leaders are terribly corrupt." Can't you see that? And the crowd goes, mm, yes, I can see that. And our, and our political leaders are terribly corrupt. Can you see that? And the, and the crowd says, mm, yes, I can see that. But then John goes for the jugular and he says, but it's not just the political leaders and it's not just the religious leaders, it's you. Every last one of us. And this is where John gets really excited and everybody gets a little nervous. John says, every one of us are complicit and culpable and guilty of participating in the corruption and we're all um, in a bad way. But then John turns up the heat because John says, hey, listen, and here's the deal. There's a reckoning that's coming, everybody. There's a reckoning because God might be patient, says John, but God is not tolerant, and there's going to be a day when God's going to judge. Um, God is going to show up as judge in the person of this person called the Messiah, and you don't want to be on his bad side. But then, right when everybody was really, really uncomfortable, um, John then follows it up, says, but, but there is an amnesty program. And the amnesty program is a thing called baptism and repentance. And in baptism and repentance, according to John, what you do is you shift your allegiance from self to God as your king. You uh, defect so to speak. You defect from yourself being your own king, and you surrender your deepest allegiance uh, to God, and then you, you get baptized, you, you take a bath, you, go, uh, you dip yourself under the water uh, as a sign of that shift in allegiance. Now, that was John, and, and John was, um, uh, made everybody uncomfortable, but he was also wildly popular. But he was not wildly popular with the politicians or with the religious leaders. And eventually he got himself arrested. And when we meet him now, he's rotting in jail, so to speak. Uh, and and, he, and his, this jail term is gonna end with him getting his head chopped off. In the meantime, he's hearing about Jesus. 
And he had thought and he had told everybody that Jesus is the just judge and the righteous king that's going to bring the reckoning. That's what he had told everybody. But as he sits in prison, he's hearing from his followers what Jesus is doing, and the career path of Jesus is not tracking with John's expectations, because John is hearing about how Jesus is, is like having dinner parties with tax collectors. That's not John's style. And then he's healing uh, servants of centurion Roman officers, and that is not John's style. And that triggers an expectation crisis for uh, John. And just see if you can identify with this. John is, is saying, uh, Jesus, what are you doing? I thought this was the time of reckoning. I've been public with this. Everybody knows I said that the time of reckoning was coming and that you were the one who was going to bring the reckoning and so forth. I thought that was your job. Jesus, what, what went wrong? Verse 19, uh, are you the one who was to come? Or did I get that wrong and we should be waiting for somebody else? Can you identify with the experience of finding God not meeting your expectations and having big old honking questions about that? Um, a lot of people talk about uh, deconstructing the faith, um, which means a lot of different things in different contexts. But but often we struggle, all of us, with questions that underneath amount to some of the questions that John is talking about. Is Jesus all he's cracked up to be? Is Jesus, as he presents himself in Scripture, what we really finally need? Or should, be we, should we be looking for someone else? And what do I do when my expectations of Jesus do not seem to be fulfilled by Jesus. What does that mean? Is there anybody that can identify? Well, go back to John. Because at this point, and this is really important, Emmanuel, um, John's questions are not a denial of faith. They're the opposite. His questions are an expression of faith. Because John sends this delegation because he wants to bring his urgent questions to Jesus precisely because he trusts Jesus. Now, keep that all in your mind and look, go to Jesus' answer. This is verse 22. Uh, Jesus answered John's disciples by saying, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. This is classic. Instead of answering the question yes or no, Jesus says, Well, look at what you're looking at. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the, leopards are, uh, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Uh, Jesus is profoundly artistic here. Why do I say that? Um, because he's doing two things at the same time. There's a la there's, he's layering meaning here. On the one hand, he's telling, he's saying, John, uh, tell John what I'm doing. He points, Jesus points to Jesus's actions, the works he's doing. But at the same time, he's pointing John to the scriptures. Why do I say that? Well, verse 22, Jesus says, go tell John what I'm doing. And he uses this language. He says, the blind receive sight and the lame walk and the deaf hear and the dead are raised. 
And th that's crucially important because those words, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk and the poor have good news preached to them, those are all near quotes from the book of Isaiah. In, in fact, the first reading that we have, we're not going to look at it, but it echoes or it anticipates that language. Now, Jesus knows that John is immersed in the Old Testament scriptures, and so Jesus knows that John's going to get the connection. And when John sees how Jesus' works connect with the Bible's teaching, that's the moment when he's going to get new insight. And what's the new insight for John? I think it's this. John knew that the Messiah was coming. And John knew that the Messiah would be a king and a judge that would bring the reckoning. But that's not the only thing the Bible taught about the Messiah. Jesus shows him that the Messiah is not only a judge, but the Messiah is also a healer. Jesus is showing him that the Messiah is not just coming to reckon with evil, though that's central, but the Messiah is also coming to put back together what evil has ripped apart. The Messiah is not just perfectly committed to justice, though he is that, but the Messiah is also going to be spectacularly merciful. And so what it ends up is the case is that John's expectations were not wrong, they just weren't complete. And so Jesus brings John to Scripture so that John can see Jesus in greater clarity, and it ended up that John was able to see the magnitude of Christ's beauty in a way that was previously unanticipated. Now, Emmanuel, that's what Jesus always does. Every one of us has a truckload of expectations about God, right? Uh, some of them are true, some of them are false, some of them, many of them are incomplete, none of them are perfect. And the crucial thing is to bring these expectations, especially when they uh, provoke questions that make us wonder whether or not the whole thing's a hoax, We've got to bring these expectations to Jesus. You don't airbrush them over. You don't pretend that they don't exist. You don't paint on a smile at church and say everything's fine. But what you do is you bring those expectations to Jesus because Jesus wants to do for you and me what Jesus did for John the Baptist. What he does is he challenges those expectations and he reconstructs them at the same time. And he does that by taking us back to Scripture so that we can see in Scripture who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what it means to repent and believe. And as Jesus comes into greater focus, both our previous expectations will be challenged and they will be reconstructed and we will find ourselves before an even yet more beautiful Messiah. That's what Jesus wants to do in you. But let's keep going, because I want to show you how this process of Jesus reconstructing our, our um, expectations leads us and leads him to cut through phony religious observance. Go back to the story. So John's messengers, that delegation, they leave. Uh, Jesus starts talking to the crowd, verse 23, and he says, in effect, um, hey, John's Nobody's better than John. Um, he, he says to the crowd, hey, crowd, do you agree that John was a prophet? Most of the crowd agrees. 
And he says, well, she says, Jesus, he says, well, verse 26, he wasn't just a prophet. He was, he was a crucially important prophet. In fact, he was the prophet, the special prophet, that the Bible says is going to come right before the Messiah. In other words, Jesus is saying, John was the opening act. The opening act is over. I'm the follow-up act, but it means that I'm actually the main show. Jesus is leading them to see him in a new light, and he's claiming to be the Messiah without using those words. He's taking the crowd's expectations, he's challenging them with scripture, and he's drawing them to see him in a new light. Now, then comes the moment when phony religion is unmasked. Look at verse 29. When all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, meaning they gave their consent to God. They said, God's right having been baptized by the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Now, this is a crucial moment, because the least religiously observant people, the tax collectors, say God's good and give their consent to him. The most religiously observant people, the Pharisees, reject God. What's happening? Well, think about the Pharisees for a minute. The Pharisees were the most religiously observant people in town. And when they heard Jesus, they knew what he was doing. They knew they could recognize how he referenced the Bible. They could see how he was implying that he himself is the Messiah. They could feel how Jesus was challenging their expectations. But here's the tragedy. When they saw Jesus challenging their expectations, they rejected it. Verse 30, do you see the word reject? It could also be termed despised. They found Jesus repellent. They found Jesus repulsive. The most religious people in the world found themselves when they came up against not just their religious observance, they were ninjas at that, but when they came up against the God who's really there, when they came up against God in person, there was something inside them that said, no, I prefer the God of my imagination. I prefer the God of my expectations. I reject the purposes of God for me. And in that moment, none of their religious observance helped them. Now, Emmanuel, this is the mystery of what the Bible calls sin. Sin is not just destructive outward behavior. Sin is not just self-sabotage. Sin is not just harming somebody in, a, in an active way. Sin includes all those things, but it's deeper. Sin is a heart that is disgusted by God. Sin is a heart that finds God repellent and finds God more repellent the clearer God becomes. And that repulsion towards God inevitably leads to destructive and harmful behaviors, but that repel repulsion to God can be camouflaged underneath a bunch of apparently good behaviors. One of the ways that you can detect sin, though, 
is a heart that loves to be critical. Look at verse 33. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he's got a demon. The Son of Man, this is a reference to Jesus, has come eating and drinking, and you're not pleased either. You say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Do you see that? Jesus is saying there's no way to please these folks. We take either tactic. We represent God either in a, in a really rigorous, uh, ascetic kind of way like John did or a, a really um, uh, 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 a way like Jesus did that's willing and able and, and eager to feast together. But both ways, the religious leaders found something to reject, some reason to say no, because underneath, they're saying no to God. It's a heart that says, I refuse to allow anyone to challenge my expectations of God. Instead, I'm going to use my expectations about God as a pretext to find something to reject when God approaches me. And that's the tragedy of sin. And, and the tragedy of sin is amplified by the fact that John the Baptist is correct. And Emmanuel, we, we, need, to, we need to remember this. Because a reckoning is coming. And there's none of us that are going to avoid it. If there is no reckoning, then evil wins in the end. But that's not the case. The Bible's very clear that there is a judge, Jesus, who will hold us all accountable for our repudiation of God. And when I face the judge, my best religious observance won't avail me in that moment. And on the other hand, if I reject religion altogether and I say religion is just a bunch of hypocrites, and so I'm going to be irreligious. That won't avail me either. We need to remember, and we need to allow the Scriptures to challenge our expectations that God tolerates sin. God doesn't tolerate sin. John was correct. However, there's more to it than that. Because remember, the Messiah is not only a judge, but he's also a healer. And in this reading, Jesus heals many, many human bodies. But we find out that Jesus is not just a healer of the human body. Jesus came to heal the human heart, the human heart that rejects God. Except it turns out that to heal the human heart that rejects God is a whole lot harder than it is to heal a human body. Jesus could heal a human body by a word, but it took something more for him to heal the human heart. It took his own death. Because when Jesus died upon the cross, he was voluntarily taking upon himself the penalty of our rejection against God. He was taking upon himself the reckoning that we deserved. And when he rose again, he rose with the authority to give us the reward and the privileges that only he can earn. And that's part of what baptism leads us into. Baptism, you say? Yes. Look back at the text. Verse 29. Do you see those who were baptized, including tax collectors, ended up consenting to Jesus, saying God's just? But those who were not baptized rejected Jesus. What's that all about? Well, baptism 
in one sense, it's just a bath, right? You, you go under the water or water gets poured over you. Uh, but there's something much more going on here. When you are baptized, God is promising and offering amnesty. And you are responding with, yes, I need that amnesty. In baptism, God is proclaiming over you, Jesus Christ has opened a pathway of amnesty. Jesus Christ has opened up a pathway for defectors. Will you defect from allegiance to self and surrender your allegiance to Christ as king? And in baptism, having heard that promise, we respond with yes, yes, yes. I need that amnesty and I surrender my allegiance to Christ. Except that that's not quite sufficient. There's more. Because baptism isn't just a one-off thing. Baptism is an inauguration. It's the beginning of something that lasts forever. It's a launching point into a whole life that is learning the process of saying yes to Jesus again and again and again. Now keep that in your mind and go back to the story. Because lots of people heard John preach and many of them responded with repentance, and they went into the Jordan River, and the waters were rushed over them as they sealed their yes to God and as they believed God's offer of amnesty. But when, by doing that, that repentance set the stage for later on they heard more about who Jesus is, and as, as Jesus came into greater focus, their hearts wanted to say yes yet again and again and again. And that's the Christian life. Your baptism, if you are baptized, whether you remember it or not, it was not just a one-off thing. It sets the stage for the entirety of your life, a life of continual repentance, of continually bringing your uh, troubled expectations and your questions to Jesus and looking at him in the scriptures. And as Jesus comes into greater clarity saying, yes, I want to give my consent again. And yet there's even more. Because baptism is not merely a pathway of amnesty, it's a pathway to citizenship. It's a pathway of adoption. Because Jesus didn't just die to release us from the threat of judgment, Jesus died so that we could be embraced by God as our Father. And that's why Jesus says in verse 28 this remarkable thing. He says, the least in the kingdom of God is even greater than John. That means when you and I say yes to Christ, we receive an intimacy with God and a privileged access to God that not even John could enjoy. He preached about it, but it was still a bit distant off for him. But for you and for me, it can become something that we taste that delights our souls. So Emmanuel, can you see, the Bible doesn't airbrush the struggle. It front-foots the struggle, and it doesn't idealize mere religious observance. It critiques it, but what it is calling us to do is to bring our struggle to Jesus Christ and to, and to let him reconfigure our expectations by bringing us to Scripture so that he comes into greater focus so that we can say yes again. And that is how we truly know God. And Emmanuel, Jesus is calling us to do that again. Some of us need to be baptized for the first time. Oh, friends, run to it.
And many of us were baptized long ago, but there are gifts to be given yet again. Every moment you breathe, God the Father is saying, let me show you Jesus again. Let me show you in greater clarity so that you can say yes again. And so the holiness and the privileges and the beauty and the joy can be amplified and can grow further and further and further. So will you say yes to him? Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.